talk to you about today is um, this um, PPE goes global, uh, PPE in a globalized world. Um, what we're going to be looking at or discussing is um, development and manufacturing quality assurance of personal protective equipment in a world that's getting more and more global. So PPE or personal protective equipment um, is something that we use in tree care uh, on a daily basis. Um, so um, to protect us against falls or for work positioning or there's a range of things that we use it for. But on a daily basis, we're using equipment um, to um, manage that risk or the, the hazard of a potential hazard of a fall. What we're going to be looking at is um, the European relevant European legislation. We're going to be looking at the different classes of PPE, uh, the notified body system, testing houses, uh, I'd like to discuss quality assurance, traceability of PPE, the globalization and the, and the effect that this has of production. Uh, I'd like to talk about some highlights, some recalls and safety issues that we've had seen recently. And at the end, I'd like to just summarize all of that. So the European legislation regu re regulating PPE is the 89.686EC directive. It's a directive that was issued by the council, and you can see here, so on the approximation of the laws of the member states uh, relating to personal protective equipment. What the directive does is it does a number of things. Um, it applies to all personal protective equipment. Um, it lays down the conditions that govern uh, the placing of PPE on the market. And um, it also defines some basic safety requirements uh, which the PPE must satisfy or fulfill uh, in regards to um, health and safety um, of the users. It also um, 
aims to, or try, attempts to uh, harmonize the criteria to be taken into account when selecting the bodies responsible for examination, monitoring, and verification of PPE. So that whole monitoring system is embedded within that directive. And it also defines situations in which PPE can be withdrawn from the market. So you, you can have centralized recalls if a piece of equipment does not fulfill requirements laid out by this piece of, um, by this directive. And I have to say that these directives, they're put out there by the European Council, and on national levels, they're then incorporated into national legislation. So a directive is, an, a directive is not actually not legislation yet. That be, it becomes uh, legislation on a national level. You could say this only applies to Europe, but I think you'll find in other countries where there's no uh, equivalent um, standards or legislation, uh, they will use legislation from other er areas in the world um, for benchmark or for reference points. So the three classes of PPE. The first class, or simple design PPE, protects against me mechanical action, that would be gardening gloves, thimbles, things like that, against cleaning materials, detergents, so that could be gloves or aprons. You have um, protecting against low heat, not exceeding 50 degrees Celsius, against atmospheric agents of neither exceptional nor extreme nature, or, for instance, the last one was minor, minor impacts and vibration. Right, one more. Yes, sunglasses is also in that category one. Category three or complex PPE would cover respiratory protection devices, so all, you know, gas masks and stuff like that. Uh, protection against chemical, chemical attack or ionized radiation, emergency equipment for, for use in high temperature environments, protection against falls from height, that would be us, and protection against electrical risks and dangerous voltages. Also things like bulletproof vests and diving gear, stuff like that. That's all in that category three complex PPE. Uh, category two is everything that's n neither one nor three. That's kind of in between, a slightly f um, funny one. But anyway, that's the. T I think this is the relevant one for that we're going to be discussing here. The notified body system is that anything bases upon the fact that anything that's within that category three has to be externally has to be certified by a notified body, i.e., not by the manufacturer. ANSI, for instance, foresees certification, type certification by the manufacturer. You do that in-house. When in European legislation, that's split up. So there's an external certification. You'll recognize this by this um, badge that you'll find on any piece of Category 3 PPE, uh, the Conformité Européenne Declaration, the Declaration of Conformity. And if you look in user instructions, I look at this, you'll find that you'll have a, a declaration of conformity from the manufacturer signed by their managing director or whatever. That's basically the contract between you and the person um, producing the PPE that they're um, producing uh, conform to the European directive. That's um, whatever, 606. Also, what you see, the second part here, this number, refers to the notified body, to the test house. 0120 would be SGS in London, um, is the notified body that tested this piece of equipment. So next time you look at your harness or carabiner or sling and you see a CE with a followed by a number, um, that's what that is. It, it lets you 
recognize that it's class 3 PP and it was externally tested. Uh, intriguingly, intriguingly enough, that CE sign is not to be confused with this CE sign, which would be China export, which is a bit of a funny one, isn't it? And that's really not what we're looking for. And I love that effect. You know what, I'm going to do that again, just because it's such a cool effect. found that last night. There you go. <laughs> love that. I could do that for hours. <laughs> so, and it's crazy, isn't it? You know, this fudging of lines where, you know, it's probably not legal, but it's definitely a bit of a grey area, isn't it? And it's misleading, to say the least. China export and um, declaration of conformity. So anyway, if you look at your, you know, take a carabiner, for instance, and you will find on, on the spine, in this case, um, 0120 CE, so that was, a, was um, type certified in, um, by SGS in London. So the next point I'd like to look at, because that's part of just come to that, but part of that directive also talks about quality assurance. Because it's one thing taking a piece of kit and doing a type, type certification uh, initially, but you know, who's to guarantee that that stays the same over years to come? You know, something that's in production for 10 years. Well, who ensures that that stays the same, that level of quality that was initially defined? There's a number of ways you could do that. You could use uh, a notified body. Uh, or United Laboratories, I suppose, will be something that, you, that people use in the States here or European manufacturers use as well. You could also use ISO, which defines um, um, processes in production. That's, there's various ways you can do that, various programs or um, companies, um, organizations you can work with. Uh, that 89686 um, directive talks about the checking of PP manufactured. And in Article 11, Section A, um, it talks about the quality control system for the final product. This looks a bit dry, but actually I think it's quite interesting because um, it says that all, manufa all manufa manufacturers shall take all steps necessary to ensure that the manufacturing process, including the final inspection of the PP and tests, ensure the homogeneity of production, conformity of PP with the type described in the EC type approval certificate and the relevant basic requirements of the directive. So there already laid out in that first um, paragraph is that um, it's quite robust requirements that are being made of these, these pieces of equipment, which is good because, you know, it's category three. We're hanging off these, you know, connectors in this case or whatever. Um, so you do want, you do want uh, robust guidelines for that. Um, paragraph B then talks about the system for ensuring the quality production by means of monitoring. So the, here we're into quality control, into a long-term view um, of how do we guarantee that um, that homogeneity is retained over a period of years. So the system that's defined is that A, under this procedure, the manufacturer submits an application for the approval of his quality control system to a body of which notification has been given of his choice. So what, what that means is that as a manufacturer, I do the initial certification, but within that certification, um, I apply for a quality control system. I, do, I have to set out, I have to define how I intend to guarantee that the quality stays the same continuously. How am I going to monitor the quality during production and as things go out of production, as pieces of equipment go out of production? And it goes on to say that the application, so that quality monitoring um, system application, 
shall include all the information relating to the category of PPE concerned, including where appropriate documentation relating to the model approved, documentation of the quality control system, and the undertaking to maintain the obligations arising from quality control systems and to maintain its adequacy and efficiency. It also goes on to say, um, basically, if a manufacturer is not fulfilling that, um, it's quite stringent in, re in regards to fines that can be issued, but also prison sentences. So it's not, it's not, something, that, it's not something weak. It's, a, it's a quite a strong, robust piece of legislation. So we've got documentation. We've got um, these obligations with the quality control systems. There's a whole range of things that a manufacturer has to fulfill there. And think about it. You know, ask yourself when you, you know, the last piece of equipment you brought, what kind of user instructions did you have with that? And the answer is, it's quite, it's quite colorful, isn't it? You know, sometimes there'll be very explicit, very clear user instructions you know, in regards to um, documentation or that. Sometimes it'll be very little, because that's also part of that whole certification process, is I need to um, you know, show that I'm passing on relevant information to the end user. So if we look at user instructions, I pulled out uh, Petzl user instructions here, and I'm afraid that's a little bit fuzzy there. But what they're doing is, look at this, they've got the body controlling the manufacturing of the PPE is, you've got your declaration conformity, 0197, which is TÜV um, in Rheinland in Germany. So that's the notified body that um, guarantees the, the, the quality monitoring body. And you have down here, you have APAV in the south of France, in Marseille, who did the type certification. So they've split up those two parts. The initial type certification is done by APAV, and then the continuous monitoring of quality is done by, um, by TÜV Rheinland. And they're doing two things with that. One thing is that they're not giving one company, one notified body, a, a, um, a monopoly on, on their quality control, you know, which would make you open to somebody just you know, asking for exorbitant prices. But also, I suppose what they're doing is, is they're ensuring that there's the, you can't reproach them bias in any direction because it's two independent notified bodies who are looking at the piece of equipment in, in question. So I think that's quite interesting. User instructions are actually really interesting once you get start looking at the sort of nitty-gritty details because there's a lot of information in there. Okay, so I do think instead of just binning it next time you buy something, just have a quick look at what it says in there and maybe keep it for your documentation. So the other thing that the, that the PP directive sets out to do is to ensure traceability. Traceability starts at the... You know, constituent um, elements of, you know, for instance, in this case, aluminium powder or the, the, whatever the alloy is made of, to the base materials through manufacturing. If you talk to um, you know, responsible manufacturers, they can tell you where those base materials are coming from, all the way back to source, carrying on from the dealer, the person who sold you the piece of equipment, via your gear check, through to your uh, control system, your per periodic checks of PPE that you probably, I hope you're doing and you're documenting. So in a sense, if, there's, um, if there is an incident with a piece of equipment, that should be 100% traceable all the way back to source. So that basically we can define where the issue was. Was it an issue in regards to maintenance? To um, Was there a problem at the level of the dealer, or was it in manufacturing? That traceability should be guaranteed at all times. 
That's key to that monitoring system. It's why you have individual serial numbers on, 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 on equipment today, is that you can trace individual um, components, not just um, batches, the way it used to be earlier, for instance. The reality today is, is that in our consumerist world, increasingly, uh, we, we're in an environment where buying habits uh, are influenced by price. You know, I look at myself to, as much as to anybody else. You know, if you've got two products where you've got one is expensive and I know where it comes from and the other one is cheap and cheerful and I don't know where it comes from, I have, I have a shrewd guess. But, you know, am I always going to go for the more expensive one? Not necessarily. But the effect that it has is that it puts manufacturers under a lot of pressure and often it forces them to adapt to... Um, what consumers expect of them in regards to price structuring of, of products. There's a number of ways you could respond to this. One is um, manufacture, uh, manufacture can optimize or simplify manufacturing processes and you know, save costs that way. You could optimize designs in regards to efficient use of materials. So if I'm using less raw material, that's another way I can decrease cost. We could go the mechanization route. You know, the way we've seen in many industries is that we save labor, labor costs by investing in machinery, and that way bring down the overall cost. Or we could outsource production. And it's that kind of imagery that um, I think European or you know, manufacturers or brands, I should say, here cringe from. I don't. We're not, the route I'm going here is not, I'm not going to start China bashing here or anything like that. That's not what this is about. It's more subtle than that. Um, I'm always very struck by when you go to out, like the outdoor show that, was, that took place in um, Friedrichshafen uh, last week, or if you go to the outdoor show, show in Salt Lake City, it's very interesting to see that manufacturers spend a lot of time talking about explaining to us the ecological accountability of their products. You know, eco-cotton and... Teflon free or you name it, okay? They spend a lot of time explaining to us why you should buy their product over somebody else's because of um, ecological accountability. Um, but I think what would be much, for me, really, what's much more interesting than that is the follow-on question, which is social accountability. You know, what's the social price of the way you produce? And it's not necessarily, this is not necessarily a bad thing because you go far east, it doesn't have to be a bad thing, but it depends how you produce in far east. I suppose you could, you could produce anywhere at really, you know, discuss, under disgusting conditions. You know, sweatshop is not, that's not tied to one specific country. I think it's just a, an, an image that that has. So, um, but it does have an effect if we talk about the way that we're producing or that production is happening. So let's take a, a carabiner, for instance, and let's, let's assume, just, we're just playing here, um, you know, you've got, a brand that produces um, under you know the label Swiss Design. So okay, it's they, there's it's Swiss Design. It goes from Zurich, and um, it's, it's contracted to a company producing in Taiwan, for instance. But they outsource it to a company in China, who again out, um, subcontract that on further to somebody in Vietnam. There's a network of producers there that move around these contracts. Traceability, I think at this point already, traceability is out the window. That's going to start to get very hard to trace. And make no mistake, 
Not every, not, every not every brand is a manufacturer and vice versa. But I think for our discussion here, what's especially important is to bear that in mind, is that the, the piece of equipment or you know, your soft shell or whatever it is, you know, has a label on it, but that may not be the manufacturer. That may just be the brand and that they're having it manufactured by somebody else. There's a whole range of um, manufacturers out there producing um, equipment. Um, just to name a couple here, you've got people like King Snaps in Taiwan, also, no, also called um, Sneaky King Pet. Uh, they do dog leash snaps, so that's their two lines of business, for, so full protection and uh, dog leash snaps. Um, you have Yusang, for instance, or CIC full protection. And there's a whole range. If you go to the ANA, um, the, the Work Safety Trade Show in Düsseldorf in October, there's you know there's tens, twenty you know there's there's loads of people producing Far East into that sector, and um, it's a very it's a very wide range of quality as well. You know people like CIC, that's interesting stuff that they're producing. They'll do a lot in aluminium. Yusang will do a lot in steel, and you know the assumption is that because they both, both those companies, for instance, sell aluminium and also steel, is that they're also exchanging stuff amongst each other. Um, and, you know, let's look to another area, for instance. Um, Taiwanese uh, in Taiwan, their education standard in maths is one of the highest worldwide. You know, they're switched on smart people doing interesting stuff. IT, for instance, or your bike frame probably comes from Taiwan, and that's quality. Okay, it's not not it's not cheap rubbish, but but essentially you get what you pay for. Okay, if I, as a manufacturer from Europe, I'm like you know I undercut I undercut production costs. I'm going to Taiwan, and I say to them, I want this for price X. They're like, yeah, fine, <laughs> you can have it for price X, but it's going to be you know there, there's a, there's a cost in regards to quality. Okay, so I'm, th these people, I'm not saying. It's cheap rubbish that they're producing, but I'm just saying they're producing what they're asked to produce by European brands. Okay, Is that, does that make sense? So if we take a look at some of the things coming out of these factories, yeah, stuff like that, the King Snap range, And if you're starting to think, well, you know, some of that stuff looks vaguely familiar. Ring a bell? That ring a bell? It's not copies. This is the manufacturer. Okay. So these are pieces of equipment manufactured and then rebranded for European brands, for instance, or US brands. Okay. They're not copies. These are where, this is where they're coming from. So for me, the big question there is, um, quality assurance, it may be happening, but we don't know, because that traceability has gone out of the window, because it's such, um, you know, it just goes from a um, subcontractor to another subcontractor into this network of companies, and that becomes very um, fudged and diffused. You know, it's hard to put your finger on where that's, where that's gone or where it's coming from. And, you know, that, that initial slide that I had with those, base, with those raw materials, I think that's, 
you know, we're not even talking about that. We're talking about something much more basic is, what factory are these things being issued by? Quasi fade, I love that one. It's a lovely euphemism like um, planned obsolescence. Um, but actually, um, quasi fade is an aspect of any production. You know, if I think about the early hitch climbers that we were producing, that DMM were producing, um, the, because the tooling was new, the, the writing was all crisp on that, and as time goes by and the, the, the tooling you know, on this big one, you know, whatever, 60-ton hammer starts to wear down, you, just, you, you get quality fade. That's part of manufacturing, which is fine. What you need is a quality assurance scheme that defines cutoff points which catches wear and tear before it becomes safety relevant. So that in itself is not a problem. It's just part of manufacturing. Earlier in training, I used this slide talking about PPE and the end user and saying that no um, sane producer would put any equipment out there that's dangerous. You know? It's in the overlap area, in this area, between the user and PPE that things go wrong. You know, for instance, due to um, misconfiguration or overload. Uh, I love this one. That was in the newspaper. That's in Bull, where I live, down in the harbour. And it's a, you know, it's a woman, and it's obviously some special forces thing. And they're training for, you know, doing something on buildings. She's got a harness on back to front. And have a look at that carabiner. It's loaded on the nose. That's not a very good idea, okay? That would, that would count as a misconfiguration in my books. <laughs> and, and I also love the way it was in the newspaper like this, and you know, they cut off, they, they cut the picture off the hair. I thought, that's fantastic. I wonder if she realized. It's a bit like that head down upsiding that you do in Australia. Do you? Is, that, is that right? Sorry? It just seems a bad idea. Or this one, you know, that's neither misconfiguration nor overload. That's just lack of monitoring by the end users, wear and tear that wasn't caught in time, that resulted in a bridge failure. I must say, though, today I'm not quite as confident anymore making that statement that it's only in the overlap area that things go wrong. Because I think the truth is, if we look back the last couple of years, we've had an increasing number of recalls and safety warnings uh, in regards to PPE, which I find deeply troubling. So if you look at this, this is a um, warning. Uh, it was, yeah, it was a warning notice issued by US Rigging. Um, it was in regards to these um, swivel carabiners, basically the ones we saw before, um, I'd say. Uh, and they have, so what happens is this swivel element gets screwed in and then it has a pin locating that screw. Because obviously it's a good idea on a swivel to locate the screw because, you know, the definition of a swivel is it turns and a screw turns and it's not a good match. So you have a pin locating that screw to stop it, stop it from, from uh, falling out. And that pin was missing on a batch that went out. Not very good. Now, the interesting thing about this recall was, or this, it wasn't a recall, sorry, this warning was that, um, again, I would suggest that that piece of equipment comes from a factory that sells to a range of brands, but yet only one brand issued a warning. Well, maybe that whole batch went out to that one brand. 
But do you know what? I don't think so. I don't think that's what happened. I just think that not everybody's being quite honest about some of the, about the hidden cost of outsourced manufacturing is quality control issues. We had the ring thing, the Cheryl ring warning. What happened here was um, there was a number of ring failures. There was a high-profile one in the U.S. during a tree climbing competition where a ring on the, on the bridge of a harness failed at body load, resulting in a five-meter fall and, and, it, and injuries. We had a number in Germany. Um, and it's, to this day, it's not quite clear what the issue was. That went backwards and forwards um, between the, the retailer, the importer, and the supposed manufacturer of these rings. The manufacturer said, the rings aren't our rings. The retailer said, they are your rings. The importer said, you know, and where's the traceability? I mean, you know, we should be able to trace this stuff. And that's insane. In such a central um, application, using something that I don't know where it's coming from. Okay? Especially on interchangeable things. I think we have to make a difference between things that are built into systems. You know, if you've got a captive ring on a bridge that you cannot remove yourself, that's something else than a ring on a, on a rope bridge that you can, you know, you can open and interchange elements on yourself. Um, and you know, testing on individual te or you know, um, testing on these rings showed that that was two thousand pounds. So that's actually not very high. This ring failed at two thousand pounds. That is definitely not enough. So you know, w what is the issue? I don't know. You know, it could be it could be these are cold, these were cold forged rings. It could be forging faults. It could be problems in the hardening. Um, there could be any number of things. In fact, I spoke to a manufacturer. In, in Germany, or to a representative of a manufacturer in Germany, and I said, you know, how have you, after this all um, came to a head, um, how they were handling the whole ring issue. And he said that when this all became public, became publicly known, they immediately tested, retested the rings that they were using in their, um, in their assemblies, and that the low that the breaking strain of the rings was not what it had been originally and these were rings that were made by somebody up in berlin and um, when they asked the manufacturer of the rings the subcontractor why the breaking strain was lower he admitted that they had changed the material that they were using with resulting in a lower breaking strain so um again you know even for a manufacturer it's a challenge to keep track of this stuff so imagine if you got you know multiple continents between you and the people who are making this stuff, that just becomes very difficult. And again, in that, in, you know, in that specific question with those rings with lower breaking strain, um, there is an issue there in my mind in regards to that continuous quality monitoring scheme. I don't quite understand why that wasn't picked up on earlier, why they needed failures before they picked up on the fact that there'd been a change um, that happened there. But I'm not pointing fingers, you know, that without a doubt, these are complex processes. You, you have multiple component assemblies, and it's just hard to keep track of. That's the truth. I was quite struck by this um, notice as well. Uh, it's from this is a U.S. notice, uh, uh, the Consumer Protection, whatever it is, 
this was this, these photon quick draws. They define the number. Uh, it w this was Camp in, in the US, um, an Italian brand. And the failure mechanism is under load, the gate can bend open and you know, result in a fall. Recently, we've seen you know, really big, reputable companies struggling with these issues. Well, actually, this is, that's not really fair. That's not what happened. The, the counterfeit gear that Petzl were hit with was um, something where a situation where they um, let us know or issued a warning that counterfeit gear had been found on the market that is identical to their products. And these are core products, okay, to their range. The Kroll, the Attache, something like the Ascension or the, the Rescue Pulley. Those are really central elements of their range. And their position was, people have always copied Petzl equipment, but um, the new, the, 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 what makes this more acute, or the new element here, was that it was, you could not tell the difference, okay? There's a very vague kind of warning where they basically say, well, you know, how can you tell it? Basically, just send it in to us and we'll have a look at it. Okay, so that was actually, I actually found that really quite, um, it's quite a shock really in many ways. Th and there's also quite a high level of criminal energy involved in that. You know, putting stuff out there that looks absolutely identical right down to the batch number um, and user instructions and everything. Um, and the, of course, the suspicion is, is that conceivably this could just be somebody who used to produce for pets. I'm not saying that's what it is, but that's what it could be, you know. And if you look at this picture, and think back to that photon quick draw recall with the, with the gate bending open, that's exactly the kind of failure that you could expect. So probably, you know, it could be um, issues with the hardness, the, the annealing process, the, the hardening of the aluminium. The aluminium might be too soft. It might be that the overlap between the, the gate and the nose is, is not enough, or the, the locking mechanism. That could all result in failure like that, or the clamps bending open. That's all. That's really not what we want to see. It's not what we want to be climbing on. So that would be, or what would that be? And that, that's basically just forgeries, isn't it? But then we had the next, or well, you know, a couple of weeks after that. Um, again, this is with Petzl issued this. It was a warning in regards to their absorbicas, which again is a very central element of their range, a shock absorbing lanyard, where um, it became apparent that uh, a number had gone out where they had forgotten to put in the bar tacks and only the holding stitching had been put in. Now, we've been to visit the Petzl factory and it's a very impressive place to see. Um, and this is manufactured in-house. The, sti the stitching's done in-house. They have a two-step quality control where, these, where they're manually controlled. They go through different colored bins. But it's you know, a human error. What can go wrong will go wrong at the worst point in time. And somehow, it just slipped through their controls. And in my, you know, in front, in front of my inner eye, what it is, it's the, it's the cleaning lady, you know, with, the, with her hoover, and she just kicks the bin off to one side, and hey, it's skip quality control. You know, something, it's probably something as easy as that, you know. Um, but I do think that, for me, really, the, the Petzl have been hit with a number of incidents and issues, and I think the way they've handled it, for me, has been... Again, it's a benchmark. You know, it's just admirable the, the way they've handled it. They've been very clear about it. 
They have not uh, beaten around the bush, and they've just laid out the facts. You know, and the consequence here for them is that they're saying, in future, no more holding stitching is bar tacks, so the structural stitching, or nothing. There's no bar tacks in, the webbing just comes apart. So that was their response. You know, they've looked at the incident, and they've de defined a remedial action they're going to take to manage that risk. And then on to the, the Grigri recall, Grigri 2, which was, um, was launched with a big, you know, a, a big PR campaign, just to realize a couple of months later that there's a position that can remain blocked in the fully open position, which I suppose will be a, a design fault. So there's multiple things. You know, it's not just, um, if we're talking about PPE, it's not just counterfeit gear, it's not just cheap and cheerful stuff coming from goodness knows where. There's also these things going on. And I think what we're seeing here is I think f f my feeling is the bad thing about um, this outsourcing of production, of manufacturing, is not the fact that we get hit with a lot of cheap and cheerful gear. The bad thing about it is, is that it's putting all producers under pressure to cut corners on their production. Okay? So if I'm producing in the US or in, you know, in Australia or in Europe, I'm being forced by the competition who's gone the cheap and cheerful route to just bring my stuff to market a little bit sooner than I would normally. A little bit less verification or a little bit, you know, th I think that's a trend that we're seeing and I think that's a great pity. And it's, there's, there is a potential hazard there that um, I do find deeply troubling and worrying. And I don't think we've seen the end of this. This is going to run its course. Um, and, but de facto, if you think back to the introduction uh, of the PPE directive and how stringent that piece of legislation is or that directive is, this is not fulfilling. I'm, you know, this is fulfilling it, but um, all of the, this whole trend that we're seeing is working against um, that whole framework, managing the PPE that we use on a daily basis. And if we look to other areas, I think we've got equivalencies in other areas. Um, I was really tickled by uh, an article in the paper the other day that was talking about the European uh, football championships in 2012 in Poland and the Ukraine. There was a, a tender that went out to uh, rebuild the A182, A4 motorways in Poland. So one of those is the, the, main, the, the main drag, the A1 is the Berlin-Warsaw Berlin motorway. Uh, it was tendered out, Every, you know, a number of people put in tenders, for, put in bids for that. And the, the bid was won by um, COVEC, which is China Overseas Engineering Group. They were 60% cheaper than everybody else. Hey, <laughs> do you have to think about that? So anyway, they got going. And in May this year, all building stopped because they hadn't factored in the price of raw materials to, to, build, these, to build these motorways. No motorways. So if you do plan to go to Poland or the Ukraine next summer, you might do well to take a b seriously big ute because you'll be going off-road. <laughs> So, um, they, so they weren't paying subcontractors, um, and um, the Polish government is now actually taking Kovac to court over 180 million euros, which I find absolutely stunning. How is that possible? If you've got two bids, and I've got um, you know, a bid for you know, some X, and all the other bids are in that range as well, and another bid that's 60% less, I do have to ask a question. Unless I'm seriously naive, which I don't think the Polish government is, and I, you know, to me, if, if, the, if, they, if that goes through court and they can sue Kovac for those 180 million, I would not understand the world. You know, that's just bizarre. 
And I think the same goes for us. You know, when we're out there buying equipment, we have to ask that difference. You know, what's the difference between, I don't know, a carabiner that costs $35 and $8? There, there must be a difference there. And I'll ask that question. It's, not it's more than just a good deal. Or it's, you know, the, the, the price that you're paying is more than just a good deal. Oh, yeah, I forgot that Chinese flag. I was going to bring that in. <laughs> or the other one. Did you see that one about the, the fake Apple stores? In Kunming, that was. Fake Apple stores with fake gear. They had three stores. And um, it, this was up on a blog. And um, the, the woman writing it, she says, you know, it looked like Apple products, looked like Apple store. Apple store winding staircase, weird upstairs sitting area. You know, blue shirts, name tags, it's all there. And, um, and the strangest part is that the people thought they were working for Apple. <laughs> Get your head around it. And, and the, 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 the scope of, you know, like Neoplan, like those, those, you know, the buses, fake buses, fake, you know, everything. Well, I'd, I'd maybe fake's, fake's the wrong word. Maybe it's just, I um, can't think of a better one. And... Sad enough, not all forgeries are this obvious, you know. <laughs> because you could say, well, you know, I'll, I know my gear. I can look at it. I can tell the difference. But the truth is we can't because some of it is down in the molecular structure of the components of, you know, if we're talking metal, if we're talking hardware, can I see that? No, I can't. You know, I can, you know of course I can recognize something that's very high-end or something that's a bit more, you know, basic, in its manufacturing, but then that range from you know sort of mid-market down to the very low end where I don't want to be, that's very hard to tell the difference. So that leaves us scratching our heads a bit. What is the solution? Well, if you look at this, this is out of the Gravel catalog. They talk about individual strength testing, which is a bit strange because that means that they destroy every single carabiner. So I'm wondering what they're going to be selling. I don't think that's what they mean. Um, but um, no, well, that depends. Um, I think suggesting that the only way to ensure that PPE is safe is by testing individually every single component is, well, it depends really how I'm, how I'm handling my operation. If I'm a brand who's outsource my production and I'm bringing components in from the outside, when those components come into my factory, I am going to be wanting to test individually every single element coming in if I'm a responsible manufacturer. If I produce in-house and I'm confident, I have confidence in my quality assurance scheme, I know how we're producing, uh, I, ca I can batch test, that's perfectly okay. So I define in my quality assurance scheme, I define a batch testing process where every so-and-so manyth harness or carabiner or ring, I pull out of production, I do my hardness testing, I do my tensile strength testing on it. That's perfectly okay. You don't have to individually test if you're confident of the quality of the, of the, of the um, subcomponents of your assemblies. If you're not sure, if, you're, if you've outsourced production, you will need to individually test. That's the truth of it. So if somebody says, um, you know, suggests that this is the solution, probably the truth there is, is that it, they're not the manufacturers, that they're the brand who are on that piece of equipment, 
but they're having it made by somebody somebody else. That's why they're having to, um, to do that. Which brings us to the hidden cost of outsourcing. I think the truth of outsourcing is it seems like a very good idea. Um, you know, like all these, you know, I can't think of a good example, but like when you're down the pub and you know, you're talking to your mates about things, that's a really good idea until I try it and I realize it's not a good idea. It's the same here, okay? This is maybe not such a good idea to move all of my machines and all my know-how off to goodness knows where. I lose that know-how within the company and then after a couple of years, I'm like, do you know what? There's such a lot of quality assurance issues here. You know, 40% of the containers that arrive were sending straight back. We have, you know, fuel, fuel costs increased, so that's knocked up the, the, the cost of production. And, 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 you know, there's, there's actually a, a gray cost there that people are not talking about. But the machines are gone. You know, that, 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 that deed is done. I can't bring that back anymore. And I think people increasingly are feeling very exposed. So, you know, where's that going to end? I don't, I, don't, I don't know, to be honest. I also think that the cheap and cheerful production period, you know, if you listen to what economists are saying today, it's, it's a very clearly defined range of time, you know, maybe 10 years max. And they're saying, you know, in 10 years' time, production in places like China will be as expensive as everywhere else. So, you know, whatever. I don't, th I don't think that re that's really relevant to, to this discussion here. I think for me, really, the baseline of... This, you know, for, for us as a group of people using PPE, is that when we're choosing our PPE, uh, we should be using objecti objective criteria and facts when we're buying equipment. We don't buy on cost, but that we understand um, where equipment is coming from, that we ask that question. Okay, so it's okay. That, that, that a consumer pressure is what one of the things that can move this. Ask the question of environmental accountability ask the question of social accountability, ask the question of you know, qu quality assurance, things like that. That is absolutely within your rights. That is the contract between you and the dealer. He's selling you equipment. You're giving him money. He's giving you quality equipment. You know, read the user instructions. Try and make head or tail what it says in there. It should be in there. It should be documented. Okay. So, with that, I'd like to... Thank you for your attention. This concludes Mark Bridges' discussion on personal protective equipment and issues regarding legislation, production, and quality control. If you would like to learn more about personal protective equipment and tree worker safety, you can find information at the ISA website and the Online Learning Center, including the free online course, Tree Worker Safety. If you would like to receive CEUs for today's talk, you can go to the ISA website at isa-arbor.com, click on the Education and Research tab, go to Online Learning and Online Quizzes. After you register, you'll need a code, and that code for today's lecture is SA6592. Again, SA6592. If you have other topics that you would like us to provide podcasts for, please feel free to contact Luana Vargas, producer of this series, at the ISA office in Champaign, Illinois, or me, Tom Smiley, at the Bartlett Tree Research Laboratory. Thank you for listening to this episode, which was brought to you by the Bartlett Tree Expert Company, caring for America's trees since 1907. 
Remember to subscribe to this podcast series and join us next time for another episode of Science of Arboriculture. Trees in every country, trees you know we can. Work together and learn what we need to meet the challenge. Traditional skills and modern techniques. Whatever language you speak, you have a world to offer every day. Climb with the ISA.